You've reached Kim Wexler. Please leave a message. Someday you'll see me floating in the sunshine, my head sticking out from a low-flying cloud. You'll hear me call you singing through the sunshine, sweet and clear as can be. Valley High will whisper on the winds of the sea. Here am I, your special island. Come to me, come to me. Valley High, Valley High, Valley High. All right. Here you go. That completes our week-long tour of South Pacific. You're welcome. This is Real Bad, a podcast that explores the entire Breaking Bad universe, including the original show, spinoff, and Netflix movie. On each episode, we will discuss one season or film where appropriate of this universe. Tonight, we will be discussing season two of Better Call Saul. My name is Jerome Cuson. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at Jerome C. 1985. I have seen up to season two of Better Call Saul. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that also includes superhero Pantheon, Pantheon Plus. There will be movies, Flooping the Pig, and the archives from Broadcast Depth. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms, which includes Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work that we are all doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has seen everything in the Breaking Bad universe. You can follow him on Twitter at KFord13. Kevin, tonight we are going to be discussing Better Call Saul Season 2, a season that in many ways I think echoes a lot of our feelings on Season 1 and our opinions. Um, So I'm very intrigued to talk about this with you because... Uh, we are continuing to see the evolution of Jimmy McGill, the Saul Goodman, maybe a little bit slow, but uh, some definitely, definitely some interesting plot lines involving Saul and also Mike becoming involved with drug dealers. Look, Jerome, I think it's great you're telling people about subscribing and reviewing and listening and all this other stuff, but I really think you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope here. The priority is our baseball cards. It's always baseball cards, isn't it, Kevin? It always comes down to baseball cards. Yep, and nothing else. No other uh, no other reason that anyone would break in except for baseball cards. Well, I have to tell you that if you would tell me that baseball cards would play a prominent role in the first two episodes of Better Call Saul Season 2, then I would probably have called you a crazy person because... This is uh, this is not the show where you would expect to see that. No, it isn't. Uh, but I guess Vince Gilligan's dad is a real life collector of baseball cards. And I think another writer or producer's uh, father collects baseball cards. So it was something that they had some uh, some on the job knowledge about. And uh, I thought it was an interesting little wrinkle to, to Daniel Wormwald's character. I think that one of the best parts of this this these first couple episodes is that you really see adding and the writers identifying the things that work and we're going to get to the bigger part of that a little bit later but 
so basically this episode is going to be divided into kind of two parts. The first of which we're going to discuss Mike because it's not going to take us nearly as long because there, there, there's some interesting things, but I think for the most part, it doesn't have that, that really solid payoff that we've come to expect from this universe yet. But, and then we're going to talk about kind of Jimmy's storyline and that's going to probably end up being the bulk of the episode. But I, I think one of the, one of the ways that we kind of, uh, see the way that the writers have approached season two versus season one is by bringing back the Daniel character and not just bringing him back, but essentially giving him kind of this two episode arc that involves him and Mike. And when we first see Daniel, I think that one of the best parts of just visually how we see Daniel now is he has this enormous car. He's got these very colorful shoes. He's got a license plate that says playa, in genuinely one of the funniest moments of season two was just that visual of seeing Daniel and Mike is looking around at this and he knows that something isn't right because Mike is a very smart individual with lots of life experience. And he knows that Daniel is sending himself for a lot of trouble. And Daniel has gotten too cocky for his, uh, his own britches, so to speak. And what ends up happening is he tells Mike to stay at home and he goes to complete his deal with Nacho. And what ends up happening, happening is that nacho looks at his registration gets an address and the baseball cards then disappear right he he doesn't he doesn't get it he's he's too much of a novice to the world of of crime and selling these pills illegally to understand and all he sees all the on the surface stuff he doesn't take into account what security gets him like someone poking around his car and finding private information so it may seem to him that Mike did nothing, but there's so much value in having someone like him giving you tips, expertise, and just being an extra set of eyes while you're making sure all the money's there, all the pills are there, all that business is taken care of. And it costs him big time because especially he has to call the police and let them know about the baseball cards while also tiptoeing around his extracurricular activities. And obviously they're uh, raising an eyebrow when they see this fancy car, this very flashy car that this IT guy at a pharmacy happens to own. Uh, it, it's it's just drawing a lot of eyes on him by law enforcement, which is something that probably Mike would have told him would be something that he doesn't want to do. Absolutely. And I think it says a lot of what they think of this character, that they kind of give him his own showcase. They have a, a big scene at his apartment where uh, he is interacting with the police and he is talking about the baseball cards and the police are are very clearly suspicious and they think that they have an idea of what's going on here and they know that there's something more that's happening. But I, I think it's a real testament to this show that of all the characters to kind of break away, there's no Mike, there's no Jimmy, but we get, we got, we kind of get this, uh, this showcase of, of Daniel and this character. And I think that that is, that is something that I think says a lot about what they think of, uh, of him as an actor. And I think the way that this all pays off, of course, is it's just kind of a means to an end to get Nacho back to interact with Mike. I think that's, that's clearly the main purpose and that's the long game that they're playing. And Mike eventually comes back into the picture and kind of negotiates a deal so that Daniel can get his cards back. But Daniel has to give up some important things of his own and um, his the look on his face when uh, when he has to get rid of the car 
is uh, is is quite a sight to behold. It's not even so much giving up the cards. The fact that he learns that they're going to take it to a body shop and have it dismantled that really really hurts him deep down inside. But I think it speaks to the, his character when both Nacho, who understands he's a huge mark, but also probably a liability. And Mike obviously knows he's a liability. And for better or worse, he's he's tied to him. So if he gets caught or something, then Mike is uh, in danger of also being figured out and prosecuted in a way. Both ends of this equation don't want anything to do with him. And Mike just has to go on his own and get the cards back so they can have a clean disassociation. So it is this situation where for both Nacho and Mike, it's in their best interest to reconcile this and just get him out of their lives because he obviously doesn't get it. He's he's uh, like you said, uh, it's too big for his own britches way in over his head. But, yeah, it is a way to get them back together. And I love that it takes Mike going to Nacho's father at the body shop to get him to speak to him again and get them on those terms. And obviously there needs to be a little um, subtlety to this. So Nacho doesn't wisen his dad up to what's going on in his life and that he knows Mike. And we don't really get a lot of interactions between Jimmy and Mike. One of the few times that we see their paths intersect is actually at the end of episode two, when Jimmy, when Jimmy is asked to represent Daniel and they spend some time in the detective's office. And whenever you get a scene in uh, in Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul in the detective's office, and Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman is involved, you know that you are going to get quite a tale woven. And Kevin, of all the tales that have been woven on this show, I never thought that the possibility of a of sexual es- exploits involving a pie would become involved. Not since American Pie. Has has the role of this delicious dessert played such a prominent role in an entertainment venue like this? Certainly not, and it shows the the creativity. Let's put let's put it that way: the creativity of Jimmy McGill. It's something that needs to be bizarre yet believable, but at the same time, you're going to need to to make some evidence for that. And I wonder if we'll see that evidence one day. I I certainly hope not. I mean, I'm not here to kink shame. Whatever two adults. Whatever two consenting adults choose to do with themselves, whether it involves pie or, or any other food and item, I mean, bless your heart. Keep 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 doing you. Uh, it is it is not something that I would personally uh, feel comfortable doing. And the idea of and I know this is this is more Jimmy and Kim, which we'll talk extensively about. But them eating a pie after all of this just seemed really bizarre. To me. Well, they did have to get a bunch of different pies left over. So no, no touch by the human body of any of these pies. But that obviously this brings up something in the Jimmy storyline where Kim realizes what what Jimmy's doing. But, yeah, I think I think eating these pies is pretty safe. I will say that. But, yeah, a little strange to be telling the story while you're eating pie with somebody. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up is a lot of my notes for this season there's a lot of crossover stuff between Breaking Bad and here. And one of the police officers, the white police officer who was investigating Wormwald's break-in uh, when he calls the police about the baseball cards, is the actor Stoney Westmoreland, who played the same police officer in uh, IFT and Breaking Bad. This is when Walt kind of just lets himself back in the house and Skyler calls the police trying to get him kicked out. But she can't bring herself to tell the truth about Walt and the police officers trying to get her to say, like, look, if you give me anything, I can probably get you a restraining order or something. But she just can't bring herself to do it. So uh, they bring this police officer back for the scene. And not to say too much, but there's 
apparently Stoney Westmoreland also worked for the Disney Channel, and there's this very ugly real-life accusations of him. Uh, but so me mentioning that he's in both these shows is not an endorsement of any type. Just saying this is one of the uh, – there. there's a lot of these little things that they do to make the universe feel so much more connected, and having a, a role of a police officer like this is one of those things. It's certainly not the first and only instance of it in this season. Right, and I think there are, there are much more prominent – returns in this season that we will of course uh, get into but i agree that that is one of the more subtle ones that even i didn't notice until you just pointed it out because it's a random police officer i i would not be able to remember him but the fact that they took the time i think really speaks to just how engaged they are with this universe at this point and uh, Kevin, I, you know, there's no easy way to transition out of that conversation, but it is, uh, it's great to know that the term squat cobbler has now come into the vernacular. Yeah, and, and I think they had mentioned on the, because again, I listened to the official Better Call Saul podcast for some of the, the, the news and tidbits and trivia for here, and apparently there is like this act of, of sitting in pie or sitting in food or has an official name to it, but squat cobbler is something that I, I believe they created and is, is in urban dictionary somewhere. Maybe Miriam and Webster will pick it up one day. One can only hope. And I just love that we have, we've gotten these different, these different terms that are completely made up, but they are very clearly connected to the universe. And it's one of those things that I always, I always like when heist movies kind of have their own little phrases and sayings, because it just makes the world feel more lived in. And that's something that I tremendously appreciate. And, you know, of course we have seen this universe so many times before with breaking bad and it already feels lived in, but just to have those little details, I mean, that's, that's really what makes the difference between a good show and a great show. I think. I completely agree. And there's, and there's a couple more I'll sprinkle in as we go through our conversation here. All right, let's get to kind of the next part. So Mike is obviously on alert for the potential of what could happen now that he has once again had interactions with Nacho and his his daughter-in-law has raised some concerns about gunshots and the neighborhood not being safe. So Kevin, this is this is one of my favorite little notes. I mean, you're the one that can that can kind of bring the universe together, but I'm about to bring two universes together as Mike is in his car listening to a baseball game on the radio. And at first, because he's from Philadelphia, I wondered, is he listening to the Philly ga- Phillies game? But Mike is in Albuquerque, so there's no possible way that he could be living or that he could listen to the Philadelphia Phillies because satellite radio was not yet a thing at this point. However, Kevin Ford, there is a team that plays in Albuquerque. Their first season was in 2003, the year that this show takes place, and that would be the Albuquerque Isotopes. And is the name of the team ever explicitly stated on the radio, or is it supposed to be just sort of a vague baseball game? It is, it is meant to be a vague baseball game, but because because I'm a giant nerd, I just I went on a deep dive to find out because I know that the Albuquerque isotopes were a thing because of the Simpsons, because there was the Springfield isotopes in Albuquerque to create their own baseball team and to get some buzz. They gave it that very same name. So that is I, I don't know if that's the game that he was listening to, but we're spending probably spending too much time on this, but 
I definitely that's that's that is my speculation is that Mike was enjoying the first season of Springfield Isotopes baseball. Yeah, I don't know if the timing works out exactly, but it's close enough where I do appreciate that uh, being a distinct possibility. Of course, Mike moves his granddaughter and his daughter-in-law out of that apartment and into someplace new. And they would they would also complete another move a little bit later on in the season as well. But uh, do you have any any perspective on what kind of what's going on in this in this particular episode and what's what's going on with the daughter-in-law? Because at times it's it's not clear whether something is actually happening, whether this is something that is in her head, perhaps. So any any speculation or any thoughts that will not give away future seasons? So, yes, you you are picking up on something that is purposeful in that is Mike's daughter-in-law telling the truth about the conditions of their neighborhood to get Mike's financial assistance to move into a better place. And that sounds evil and it sounds terrible, but there's also a part of me that has a hard time judging somebody like Mike's daughter-in-law who has gone through what she's gone through. And from Mike's point of view, we already know from last season, he feels responsible for the death of his son. And we also know that Really, when you when you boil it down for Mike, if he doesn't have his family, if he doesn't have his granddaughter, he's got nothing. So he will go to great expense, both in his personal life, in his time and his finances to keep them close, keep them safe. It's why he offers to stay overnight and he doesn't really observe anything. There's the one scene where she points out the bullet hole and I don't know that he is sure that it's real or not, but in a lot of ways, it doesn't necessarily matter to him. I think he ultimately just wants to make sure his daughter is happy and he can do whatever he can to keep them close because one would understand why maybe she would want to disassociate from her grandfather if she feels he's responsible for the death of her husband. But also at the same time, I think it's the last lingering thing of her husband that's around And he's good with the granddaughter who likes him, too. So there's a lot of benefit. It's like this weird two-way street that's working for them. And I I don't know that it's, you know, exploiting Mike per se. But I also think it is hard for her as a a single mother to make things work with, with one daughter in this area. And, you know, trying to trying to make meals, trying to make ends meet, trying to keep a safe and good quality of life for her. So it's a really complicated situation is what I'm, I kind of gather from all this. And from my end, it's really hard to judge anybody too harshly about it, but that's just kind of my, my takeaway from it. I don't know. I didn't know when I wanted to say this, but do you want to hear something interesting about the character of Mike Ehrman trout and Jonathan Banks being in the show? Always. So do you remember when Mike was first introduced into breaking bad? I I vaguely recollect this. Okay, so he w- the first time we ever see Mike in Breaking Bad is when he plays the role of the cleanup guy for Jesse uh, after Jane dies in the apartment. Right. So that role was supposed to be meant for Saul. Saul was going to be the guy who comes in and does the cleanup stuff, but for whatever reason, Bob Odenkirk was not available. So they created this nameless, faceless cleaner role because of that, and if for not for Bob not being available that day, Mike Ehrmantraut would not have existed in Breaking Bad. And Jonathan Banks tried out for the role, and Vince Gilligan was a big fan of his from his role on the, the CBS show Wise Guys. And so the rest is history. Now we have Mike Ehrmantraut, now we have this, but it's just so interesting, the, the butterfly effect of 
if Bob Odenkirk was available that day and Saul was going to be the one cleaning up, we would have never had Mike Gurman Trout and Jonathan Banks in this universe. And from a character perspective, it doesn't make as much sense that Saul would actually be the one to clean it up, knowing what we know about Saul now. That almost doesn't even make sense. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it probably would have been okay. But just knowing what we know now, I think it's I think him having this network of associates to do a lot of the dirty work for him makes a whole lot of sense for the Saul Goodman that we know in the Breaking Bad universe. So I want to get into kind of the the meat and potatoes of what Mike gets involved in for a lot of the second half, because a lot of it is kind of some back and forth with Nacho. Tugo becomes involved and he gets the crack kicked out of him. And we get the reintroduction of Hector into the Breaking Bad universe. Hector is slightly younger at this point. He is not yet in a wheelchair ringing his bell. But Kevin, they did a great thing reintroducing Hector back into this universe. I love the way that they reintroduced him and the way that he entered, literally. Yeah, so do I, because he was almost like this last resort of after trying to get Mike to change a story about whose gun it was uh, so that Tuco wouldn't do as much serious jail time. Then you finally have to get the head honcho involved. And this is where you get his introduction. I imagine if this were uh, in the movie theater, you'd get this big Avengers type reaction for when a new character is introduced for him sitting down at Mike's diner to, to talk to him and try to convince him to do this. And that's kind of the beauty of this show is you get these characters that we all come to know and love and you can do so much more with them in here and you know the end game. And so now you're wondering, okay, well here he seems to have all of his mental faculties. He's walking on his own. He's speaking. How the heck does he get from being this intimidating character, the leader of this, lack of a better word, cartel, to being this this character who is can't who can't walk, who's in who can't speak into this role in Breaking Bad. And but now you have uh, you have this extra time with him in this role where he is so unique and different. And that yeah, that to me is, is a lot of fun having this 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 new dynamic between this whole family. And when he walked into a diner, the be- the bell went off, which was sure did. Just- sure did. I mean, chef's kiss to that. That's yeah. that's that's brilliant writing. That's great, great detail work. And I think the drug stuff is kind of up and down. Obviously, it is important because Saul Goodman, Mike Irvin Trout are very heavily involved in the drugs when we get to the point of Breaking Bad. But I think that when you're playing this long game, I think sometimes you can kind of lose the forest for the trees when it comes to individual seasons, because there really isn't like a real big, like dramatic payoff to this season. But there, there are a couple of, po- of moments that I think were, were pretty, were pretty funny, especially when there's a point when Mike and his granddaughter are taking a hose and they're putting holes in it, <laughs> putting holes in with the drill and you're just wondering like what in the hell is he trying to do and Mike gives this BS excuse for why they're putting holes in the hose and then we get the payoff to it in the next episode when he literally takes out the tire of a truck so Kevin I have to tell you that if I if I ever need to take a car out I now know what to do and I, I will never look at a hose the same way again Definitely not. And he's smart. He has the alibi for his daughter-in-law when she comes to go pick up his granddaughter. He makes sure to clean the hose with soap to make sure her fingerprints and his fingerprints aren't on it. Because after that, he starts handling it with these purple gloves he's wearing. And it's a great opening to the season. We're out in Nowheresville. He 
yanks the hose in the place with all the nails in it to pop the tires and get the money out of the tires of the of the truck itself. Really, really good stuff. And it does seem like a lot of this is intimidation and posturing and positioning between the Salamanca family and Mike for this whole season because and and it leads to a lot of like these these character returns and little things that I think are supposed to to give to elicit a, a positive reaction from the crowd. Like you get the twins coming back again, intimidating Mike from a distance when he's with Kaylee, his granddaughter in the pool. You get the return of Crazy Eight as one of the one of the drug dealers for Nacho and Tuco in the uh, the restaurant, the Mexican restaurant where they do their business. And we talk about the difference between Tuco in Breaking Bad and Tuco in Better Call Saul. Well, here we see the beginning of uh, Tuco's uh, cocaine addiction and why that turns him into this erratic being in in Breaking Bad. So I think that kind of little change, too, is uh, is is one of those explanations for why is Tuco so different between these two shows? Why do we (laughs) why did you and I like him so much more in season one of this show than we did in Breaking Bad? And even you see Nacho understanding when someone within their own organization becomes a liability you get him uh and and they talk about how they're sort of these human lie detectors and seeing who they can trust with their money and that's why they're investigating crazy eight after he gives them their money all these little things to add a lot of depth to the salamanca family and their dealings but mike on his own that's really what it comes down to for me is showing that mike on his own is so smart so seasoned so well put together that on his own, he stands to be this credible force against this this cartel family. Yeah, I think that's that's the most amazing part is that they have so clearly delineated these two storylines, and and Mike and Jimmy are kind of on their own and have very minimal interactions, even though Mike is the co-star of this of this television show. And I think that that's it's it's pretty fascinating to think about just the way that we always thought of them as being together and in the same space a lot of the time on Breaking Bad. But here, they are so much separated. And we see that Mike's job as a, as a parking lot attendant is not as prominently featured. We do see him a couple times, so they don't, they don't completely forget about it. But we do see Mike interacting with the drug dealers and that side of things. And it's increasingly obvious to Mike that he needs to try to rectify this situation by possibly even killing Hector and trying to move on from this situation. And we get, we get him, we get that development as uh, we get the return of Jim Beaver as the, uh, the gun, the gun dealer and the scenes that they have together, even though there's only two of them are, are just tremendous here. You have two people who are, I would say mostly character actors. I think Jonathan Banks has kind of become uh, a much greater entity because of these two shows. But you have these two older character actors who clearly have a lot of history together. And the fact that, you know, they're so pleasant to each other, even though there's a lot of business and the guns on the table. It's, it's fascinating to me that in a universe where nobody trusts each other, that these two people have a lot of trust for each other. And and honestly, that makes a lot of sense to me. So this is Lawson is his name, the arms dealer. Uh, he sold Walt the 38 snub handgun in season four. Then at the beginning of season five, he was the person who gets Walt the car and the M60 for his turret. Uh, it's in episode one of season five. But then, of course, that's what ends up killing Jack and his crew in the last episode of Breaking Bad. That's all set up by him. And I feel like they, they have a lot of respect for each other, a lot in common. 
Uh, I like that Lawson isn't bothered by the fact that the first time Mike sees him, he doesn't make a purchase. He doesn't even accept money from him. Uh, it's not a bother to him because he think he realizes that Mike knows his stuff and he's not someone who's going to actively waste his time or pussyfoot around. And it's just like, look, I'm, I'm a businessman, whatever you do. I don't want to do. And some of that morality gets brought up into question. But ultimately, then Mike comes back to him later and buys that sniper that uh, that the sniper rifle that he ends up using and posturing at the the final episode of this season. Uh, and it's confirmed in this scene that Mike is a Vietnam veteran. I think that was maybe intimated or hinted at in Breaking Bad, but it's definitely confirmed here. And on the podcast, Vince Gilligan makes a comment about him probably having been a Marine sniper in the Vietnam War. So Mike has. It, it kind of just adds a little bit of that background to Mike as to why he's so good as a sniper, why he's such a good shot and with a handgun, all these other little things. It's because he has this background as being a war veteran. And yeah, I love the character of Lawson, the arms dealer. It's it's weird to say that you, you see some humanity and some good in someone who is ultimately dealing uh, weapons illegally, but something about Lawson, man, it's hard to dislike him. It's really hard to dislike Lawson, even though if if I were to see a real gun dealer on the street, perhaps or at a gun show, I would I would probably be morally I would probably be repulsed by by their mere presence. But it's it says a lot about Jim Beaver as an actor that he's able to bring so much pathos uh, to this character. And I think as as we kind of get into the last episode with Mike, Mike has teased the fact and he has practiced and he is ready to potentially do it. And the timing just isn't right. Nacho's standing in front of Hector. So Mike does not get to uh, do the deal, so to speak, and finish Hector off. So then he goes to his car and finds a note that very simply says the word, don't. And that is pretty much where we leave off Mike in season two. Somebody has told him not to kill, to kill Hector. And I think that is something that we're going to find out very early on in season three. I have a I have a gut feeling as to who it might be, but Kevin, don't. Yeah, you you I had to imagine you popped huge when you saw that. Don't. That's a favorite meme of yours to send me from time to time from Breaking Bad. Well, it's it's one of those things where, uh, so when you're thinking about tweeting, don't. Yeah, don't. I think uh, truly, I think this is something I tell people with emails, tweets, a lot of things. If you're mad at somebody or whatever, type it. Write it in drafts or type it in Word or something. Then go take a walk. Come back to it in about an hour. And if you still feel that way, great. Hit send. But chances are by the time you get back to it, you realize, yeah, this is probably not a good idea and you'll just delete it. So that's my little PSA for you. But yes, you're leaving season two wondering, who is this that warned Mike? And don't forget that he got this signal because somebody was able to press uh, press something on his car alarm to have it go off. Not car alarm, his horn. And it was important that his car was far enough away that the horn also wouldn't have attracted the attention of the Salamanca family. So that was an important positioning as well. Uh, but yes, who who saw him, who told him not to do it? Definitely a big question going into season three. Uh, the only kind of last thing I have to say that's another little fun wrinkle is we talk about that Mike ends up paying for Stacy, his daughter-in-law's new home for him and his granddaughter Kaylee. Uh, the realtor who sells them their home is Stephanie Doswell. That's the same realtor who caught Marie stealing spoons in uh, your favorite Breaking Bad episode, Open House, oh so often ago. So, hey, gets her another payday, keeps the universe a little more tight. What's not to like? Now, a lot of these actors in kind of these small cameos, are these actors 
that are local to Albuquerque or they or were they going from Los Angeles to Albuquerque? That's a really good question. I don't know that. I'd have to imagine it's maybe a mixture. Uh, but I, you know, I, my guess would be most of them would have to be in Los Angeles. I just don't know that it's that being stationed in New Mexico is going to get you as much work. But, you know, you go where the work takes you. And even if it's a, a day's work on a show like Better Call Saul, which has such a great pedigree in Breaking Bad, you take that work. Yeah, I'm not sure because I know that Albuquerque has definitely become a very prominent place for movies as well. So I, I, I definitely wonder about that. And I, I'm, I, I would not say that the Mike stuff is bad, but I think – that it it definitely because there's no payoff yet i think it's hard to get into some of and i think where this show feels the most like it's falling into the 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 prequel itis is in those mic scenes because you are getting the return of so many characters and you are you are to an extent getting some fan service by having the twins return having hector return having tuco return even for season 2 so I think that's where the show feels most like a prequel. And I think that that's, that's kind of where it suffers to an extent because you know the fate of so many of these characters and I think the drama is is lessened even by just a little bit. If there is anything inherently wrong with the execution of these scenes, and I can imagine a universe where if you are watching Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad, that, that it is a lot more compelling. And I'm so fascinated if at some point when people are streaming and going back, are they going to watch will they ever watch Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad? And how will that affect your perception of both of those shows? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. That's very an interesting. I would lo- love to know if there are people who have done that, who have attempted the Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad. Um, Cause I guess that is technically the quote unquote correct order of watching things kind of like watching Star Wars one through three for before watching four through six. Um, but yeah, just production order and all that sort of stuff. But I do agree with you. That it just feels like there's some a lack of cohesion in some of the Mike stuff. You get great moments, you get great scenes, some really great settings and and things of that nature. But there's just something kind of lacking about it, especially after such a great episode focused on him in season one. You don't necessarily feel like you get the strongest Mike stuff here in season two. And it, and I feel like part of the suffering too is that the Jimmy stuff is so strong and so overwhelming. And hey, he's the titular character. It makes sense that would be the way it is. And in some ways, almost all of the Mike stuff is fan service in general. He didn't need to be in this show at all, but I'm glad he is. I'm glad we got what we did, but it definitely doesn't feel like as strong and, and cohesive as what we got out of him in season one. And you, and I think part of that is because he seems like he's just straight a little too far from being associated with Saul. And that's where we know that they are in, in Breaking Bad is they're directly associated with each other. So I think that kind of hurts it too, but... uh. I think the Jimmy stuff was so important that I, I understand it. And I'm glad that Mike wasn't totally dropped out of the picture. Right. I think you have to keep Mike involved. And it's very clear that this is all going to connect by the end of the show, if not by the end of season three, four or five. But you, you have to take those steps to get there. And sometimes it's it's a little bit on the clunky side, especially when you are filling in background and you kind of know where things are ending up, but you still have to try to to execute. So. Let's go back to the beginning of episode one proper as we get again, see Gene in the town of Omaha, Nebraska. Gene is shutting down the Cinnabon for the night, locks himself in the garage, and he does not want to involve the police, so he does not call them. 
Instead, he has to wait for a janitor to walk in, and we get this incredible shot uh, as they zoom in, and it says, SG was here. And that is a, that is a fantastic tease uh, for the rest of the season and the rest of the show. I continue to be impressed with the way that they shoot these uh, these uh, prologue, I guess is the term I'm looking for here, but it looks so much different, not just because it's in black and white, but because they are clearly going for a very different vibe than the rest of Better Call Saul and kind of the desert ambiance. But here it's concrete. It's the mall. It's, you know, they're, they're selling food and whatnot. And I mean, when you, uh, when you have something in black and white and it's shot in a mall, how much does Kevin Smith enjoy these little prologues? I have to imagine he does. And I also go back and forth on if I wish there was more or it's good that they're just do the one at the beginning of the season and kind of whet your appetite and leave you wanting more of these these scenes with Gene. And uh, it wasn't I guess it wasn't a garage. It was the uh, where he where you throw away the garbage, like the dumpster room in the mall. And, yeah, the door says he there is a door in there he could leave through an emergency exit. But it says plain as day, like the police will be contacted and come if you open the store and well he can't risk that given he's in witness protection or whatever else so he's got to wait because they show the clock in the hallway it's a, it's about two hours maybe a little longer you know give or take or less but yeah he has to wait in there for a long time and he and he gets bored this is the day before cell phones and all or you know cell phones that have that are smart and have games and things of that nature so he gets bored and a scratches sg was here in the wall and uh i guess he was i guess sg was indeed there and also, even if this is modern times, because we don't know exactly when this is taking place, I don't think it would be a good idea for Gene to have a smartphone since they would be able to find out where he is. So he's probably not going to be the person that invests in an Apple iPhone. Yeah, I think that would be a poor decision. Now, Kevin, the big question about Cinnabon, is it part of the food court? No, of course it's not part of the food court. It's a standalone eatery separate from the food court. Food court's probably upstairs or in a different part of the mall. I, I, I tried to set you up, Kevin. That's that's I did my best to I did my best to try to quote the mole rats part. Any restaurant within said designated square downstairs counts as a food court. Any other place is an autonomous unit for mid mall snacking. There, are you happy? Yes, I so happy. Because anytime you get to quote mall rats, you've gotta take advantage of that. Because you're just you're just not gonna find those opportunities, man. You're just not if they, if they really wanted to pop Kevin Smith, they would have put a fashionable mail or something like that in the background of this mall. <laughs> like the back of a Volkswagen? Anyway, let's get to the <laughs> let's get to the important stuff. As we go back to the end of season one, we kind of see a new scene inserted. I, I, I called it what amounts to a deleted scene from the finale. And again, I think this is a part where they're kind of rethinking maybe what they were doing in season two because we do get this scene of Jimmy turning down the job, but he does get a chance to meet uh, some of the some of the members of the firm, including Kevin, your and I's one of our favorite character actors, Ed Bagley Jr., a great, great man, Plague Cliff. Ed, we had a lot of chance to talk about him in Veronica Mars. Season three, we talked about him then, and we could talk about him on this this episode because he is a he is a prominent character throughout season two. A Better Call Saul, and I, I had forgotten, I think I knew, but somehow forgot that he was on Better Call Saul, but anytime you get to see Ed Bigley Jr., it is a, it is a, you know it's going to be, uh, you know it's going to be good. 
Yeah, what a great acting choice. Cliff Main, played by Ed Bagley Jr., someone you can't help but like. And I think it's important to have Jimmy's future boss, future coworker, be somebody that you like. And, you know, from the podcast and stuff, both in the way that the Davis and Main offices look, from how Cliff Main acts, acts, it's supposed to be not it they they were purposely thinking what can we do to make this not just a direct facsimile of HHM it needs to be purposely designed to capture the culture and the art of of Santa Fe where the offices are and i thought about that when i was editing our first podcast cuz you mentioned them using albuquerque again as a scene and how they were going to integrate that into the show and i think introducing santa fe as a secondary location is an interesting aspect of better call Saul and to me when you when you look at Cliff Main, played by Egg Bagley Jr., he feels in very stark contrast to uh, to Hamlin and, of course, Chuck. Yeah, I really love the design of those offices. It feels much more like the ambiance of something I would expect in New Mexico, just the way that it's designed. And when you look at a lot of houses in the, in the Southwest, it definitely resembles those a lot more. I think the, the other law offices of Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill, I think those feel so much, so much more corporate and more sterile. And I think Davis and Maine just feels a lot more homely and in a good way. Because I would feel much more comfortable as a client going into those offices than going into the other one. And not just because they randomly have to shut the electricity off whenever one of the bosses comes in. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. And there's there's just a lot of little touches. I love the fact that later on, when they mention the toilets and things like that, and it just it feels so much different. And it feels like this is a law firm that has a little bit more morality attached to it as opposed to Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill as well. That's kind of the impression. It's never explicitly stated that they that they that they're going for this more moral high ground, but they're very clearly going for something different. And that is reflected in everything that they do, from kind of the crappy commercials to the fact that you know they they talk about the toilets and and I'm sure Ed Bigley Jr being involved has a lot to do with this as well and because he is a huge environmentalist and has been for a really really long time and I'm sure that that undoubtedly has has made an impression on the writers and affected how they portray Davis in Maine. Yeah, and I think that's you, you those little things are very big like the 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 more homely more uh, like aspect of that uh, of Davis and Maine versus HHM, where HHM just has this ever long conference room where these meetings are happening. Meanwhile, when Jimmy has to have a meeting with the three partners, they're they're sitting on couches while he's standing up, and it just takes place in Cliff's office. Just like little subtle things, there's there's obviously similarities in some of the dress between the two, and they both care about their reputation. But like you said, Davis and Maine really cares about where their offices are set up in Santa Fe, trying to adopt a lot of that architecture and the art style within their buildings, trying to be part of the community and give back, trying to reduce their carbon footprint and be mindful. Just there's these things that don't get brought up in HHM, which feels much more like an office environment that you would expect out of a major giant law firm that, uh, that Davis, I mean, differs for Jimmy, but still ultimately is not a good fit. What I do think is, though, is the big takeaway from that beginning scene where he turns down Davis in Maine initially is that conversation with Kim, where after talking to her, 
she puts it in you know plain language that whatever you do with your law life and your work life has nothing to do with you and I personally. And that gives him the confidence to say, okay, great. Then I turn down this job because I think in his mind, that jeopardized whatever him, him and Kim have going on. He would have taken it and adapted to that lifestyle. But uh, that lifestyle and Jimmy do not compute. Um, and that's really kind of what I think a lot of the, the big over overarching picture of season two is, is his personal life versus professional life and trying to make them both work. Well, and I think what, what makes this work so well is I had a lot of questions at the end of season one. Like, where are they going with Jimmy and Kim? And you very much see where they're going right in episode one. It feels like the volume on their relationship gets turned up from about a three or four to like a seven or an eight just in the first episode as they immediately start talking about kind of their future. What is their future? That's a conversation that's happening a lot in the first couple episodes. But in episode one, Jimmy basically decides not only is he not taking the job at Davis and Maine, but he's not going to be a lawyer anymore. And I think that one of the things that I fully expect to be a theme of the rest of the show is the way that Jimmy slowly tries to get Kim involved in, in his shenanigans and, and polluting her mind with uh, kind of these bad deeds. And they commit a bad deed against somebody who probably deserves it. And if not for this, for this episode, then for something he did in Breaking Bad much later uh, in his life, Kevin, this is your opportunity to talk about a a fan favorite, Ken. Ken Ken wins as he's uh as he's known because of his license plate for his car. So yeah, uh, played by Kyle Bornheimer, reprising his role from Cancer Man the, in Breaking Bad season one. He was the obnoxious bank patron whose fancy car ends up getting blown up by Walt when he later sees him at a gas station, and yeah. So this, from my perspective in the beginning of season two, is Jimmy introducing Kim to Slippin' Jimmy. And she ends up really liking Slippin' Jimmy. She has a lot of fun conning Ken Wins out of a ton of money as they pretend to be brother and sister trying to uh, look like they're reinvesting in the stock market. So they they take him for a ride over a long, long dinner where they're getting lots of drinks from this expensive tequila and end up sticking him with this very large bill. And they have a great night. And Kim seems to get the same rush that Jimmy does from this. Uh, and I think that you you get co- sort of mixed messages from Kim to Jimmy throughout the course of the show. Uh, but here she's very much enjoying it. And uh, did you recognize what the expensive tequila they were ordering was, Jerome? I, I, I recognize that it was expensive, but I don't necessarily remember what it was called. So that was Zafira Añejo, which was the same tequila Gus used to poison Don Eladio and his crew in that Breaking Bad episode, Salud. So again, just little things tying stuff together, but uh, I'd, I'd recognize that bottle from anywhere. That is a really, uh, that's a really fascinating detail. And I like the fact that they are using this tequila in a very different manner this time. It's not as serious. And I don't think it is a coincidence that uh, Jimmy and Kim sleep together after this incident and i believe when they pull off their scam later on they do the same thing i don't think that's a coincidence yeah i can't remember exactly but yeah yeah you, you can you could tell this is this is a side of of jimmy and a, a new side of kim that she's developing that she likes i don't know if that she likes that she likes it but she does 
for sure. We don't get any of Chuck in episode one. We do get Chuck a lot in episode two as they bring him back into the fold. We kind of get some exposition of what's happening in the case and where Jimmy is. I really appreciate the fact that they kind of have this exposition dump, so to speak, and kind of explain what's going on because I think it's important to understand that this this case that they're involved in, Sandpiper, is, is very dense, very, very complicated. And it is worth noting, and they go out of the way to mention, right, in episode two, that Howard makes it clear that Kim is the one who pushed for Jimmy's involvement. And I think that that is, that's something that's worth noting and plays an important role in as, as we see Howard and Kim's relationship develop and kind of slowly go downhill throughout the rest of the season. Right. And I think it was important for Howard to let Chuck know that I didn't get in the way, but I also didn't endorse blah, blah, blah. I think he's, I don't want to say he's scared of Chuck, but I think he's definitely intimidated by Chuck and does not want to be on bad terms with Chuck whatsoever. It's, it does seem like his actions and what he does are definitely motivated by what, what Chuck would do, what would make Chuck happy. Um, but again, there's, I think we see at this end of season one that maybe based on information he had from Chuck, he, uh, he, he missed, he, he had Jimmy mistaken. And I think he, again, him being so impressed with the way that he was taking care of, of Chuck and Howard knows how much Chuck has caught, how much work Chuck has cost Jimmy over the time with the firm. I think it changes his perspective of him. So he's, he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too, where he's letting Jimmy have some work working with Davis and Maine, but also trying to put the, the so-called blame on his, on his hiring B at Kim, not him. It wasn't me who endorsed him. So you have Howard trying to do this juggling and balancing act. Absolutely. And uh, we get Kim purposefully sitting Jimmy next to her. They talk about evolving their relationship because Jimmy, as, as you mentioned earlier, is in Santa Fe. For those who may not know their New Mexico geography, Santa Fe is only about an hour away from Albuquerque. So two of the bigger cities in New Mexico are relatively close to each other. Kevin, we get also Jimmy gets a brand new car and he gets to look through the sunroof. I love the look on his face when he sees that he has a sunroof. <laughs> but uh, we say goodbye to his old hunk of junk, at least temporarily. It will return toward the end of the season. But even a brand new car, Kevin, does not always have it's, – it's not perfect because his cup – his brand new coffee cup won't fit in the holder. And this is a running gag that goes throughout the the uh, the episode. I think that cup holder is definitely a good metaphor for where Jimmy was in Davis and Maine. I mean, if you look at everything on the surface, how is this not an enviable position for any lawyer? You've got a partner track position, an office on your own. Jimmy gets the desk of his dreams purchased for him by the company better than the one that your own boss has. You've got a company car. You've got a company apartment. You've got assistance at your beck and call for anything you need personally and professionally. And yet for Jimmy, it's just not the right fit. Just like this cup holder with the with the number two lawyer mug that Kim gives him as congratulations for him finally getting into some honest work with the law where he gets to work with her, gets to work on a case with his clients, and yet He's not satisfied. Something's missing. He's not happy. It's just not the right fit for him. I think it's one of those things where movies and TV shows probably don't explore this enough. But there is this idea that 
when certain characters get their dream job or their dream relationship or anything of that sort, that that's just what happens. It's happily ever after. It's a fairy tale. That's not how life works. Sometimes you get the dream job and it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with your lifestyle. It doesn't fit in with what you're trying to accomplish. And sometimes, you know, there's the statement about be careful what you wish for. And I think that's true in this case. I think Jimmy had a vision for what he wanted, but in reality, maybe it was more what other people want for him. And I think that's something, I mean, I think that's one of the themes of the show, that Jimmy is trying to figure out what he wants versus what other people expect of him. And he has a methodology of doing things that is not always uh, kosher, so to speak. And I think that gets represented really well at the beginning of the third episode, the way that he solicits uh, the people on that bus. And I love the fact, I love the way he's dressed, the cowboy hat. One of the things I mentioned to Kevin is that I really want a better Call Saul action figure series uh, with different versions of Jimmy and uh, Saul. And I, I definitely want uh, Texas Jimmy McGill is what I want. Right. And I think for Jimmy, there's a lot of these things where how could what I am doing be a bad thing? Look at all these new clients I got us. Look at all these new people who now have representation who are going to get their they're going to get their comeuppance and, and get done right by them because of us, because I went and did this. But it's not it's not uh, it's not above board, so to speak. It's not something that is uh, that maybe would would look good to either of the firms he's involved with. And even he gets heavily questioned by Chuck in the courtroom, things of that nature. And he realizes he needs to to back off. But I think for Jimmy, there's a lot of these things he does that are his heart's in the right place, but maybe his actions don't necessarily jive with these law firms. And that's where a lot of that friction comes from. And we see that Jimmy creates his own commercial as a means to attract uh, new clients potentially to this class action lawsuit of Sandpiper. And I think that what makes this storyline work so well is the commercial is actually good. It is professional. It is well-produced. It looks so much better than the commercial that Davis and Maine produced, which is just a wall of text. And I, I just, in the back of my mind, I can't believe that anyone would approve that. But I guess I guess that's kind of the way they roll. But you see these commercials for these local lawyers, and most of them are pretty dreadful. And I love the idea that on a $700 budget, he was able to create something that was at least like it's a little cheesy, but I think it's so much more effective than a lot of these other legal commercials. And I think they're trying to represent that Jimmy does have a flair for show business and th these kind of attributes. Despite this, he gets himself in a lot of trouble. Kim kind of gets shunted to the the basement, so to speak, on document review. I really wish that they had the one thing I wish they had done. We know the document review is bad, but I wish that they explained specifically why document review is so bad and explain, like, when you were review, reviewing these documents, like, what specifically would Kim be looking for? I wish they had gotten a little bit into the nuances of that just to represent how boring and pedantic it is. Yeah, I guess I could see that. To me, it's always just like you're working the filing room, right? You're not the face of the company. You're not doing the exciting lawyer stuff, the stuff where you can maybe make some good money or build a career from yourself. You're just doing the boring stuff that nobody wants to do. Uh, but yeah, this is with, with the commercial, Jimmy says, all right, I'm not going to solicit a person. He makes that promise. And it's his idea to do a commercial. 
and he pitches the idea to Cliff, who's on his way out the door for a weekend away. And Cliff kind of gives a half-hearted you, and we'll talk about it Monday, but it seems like it could be a good idea. And Jimmy takes that to sort of act, ask for forgiveness instead of permission, makes his own commercial, puts it out there, a one-time showing, and it gets them a lot of clients. So it goes back to the same thing as the soliciting is, how can this be a bad thing? Look how little money I spent and look at the results it gets us. But it comes down to the reputation. You didn't get approval from partners, blah, 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 bureaucracy, red tape, all this other stuff, stuff he hates. And fortunately for him, he it, he doesn't get fired, but Cliff makes it clear this is two strikes, one more and you're out. And the problem with this, though, is that Jimmy gets Kim in hot water because he leads Kim to believe that Cliff approved this. She's genuinely proud of him for this commercial. And when Cliff calls him to yell at him about this, he takes another room and plays it off like Cliff is congratulating him and not castigating him. And so when Kim goes into work in HHM, who's working with Davis and me on this case, she gets chewed out because they think that she had awareness of this commercial and Jimmy going ahead with it without Cliff's permission, but that's not how Jimmy framed it. And she doesn't give Jimmy up to them. And so now Jimmy has to deal with Kim facing consequences for his actions, which is not what he wanted. Um, and he even goes and says he's going to make it right. And what this is what I love about Kim is we talk a little bit about in Breaking Bad how sometimes the, the female characters don't get to be the strongest. But I love that Kim yells at Jimmy and says, no, this is my problem to solve. I save myself here. And I love that she takes that role and takes takes matters into her own hands for Jimmy's mistake. Uh, and even if it's not right, if it's not what it is, she's she's going to solve the problem herself. And we see that she ends up doing it in a big way. But uh, I, there's, a, there's a lot we haven't gotten to with Kim, but I, it reminded me so much watching the season of how we had our issues with some of the ways the female characters were portrayed in Breaking Bad. And Kim, to me, busts through all of that and is such a strong, great character in this show. And I think... Jimmy screwing things up and her taking it on the chin, not throwing Jimmy under the bus and, and looking to work herself out of the hole that is document review is awesome. Yeah, I think it's utterly fascinating when you look at Skylar versus Kim. And it's it's never fair to compare a one for one because these are two very different shows. But you can't possibly ignore the fact that you're dealing with a lot of the same writers. You're dealing with the same executive producer and Vince Gilligan. So you can't help. Uh, but compare the way that these two uh, these two women are portrayed and the way that Kim just comes across as being so much more so much stronger, so much more competent. And that's not to say that Skylar was ever incompetent, but I think that she was written in a way that she sometimes came off like a wet blanket or the perception could very easily be that. And I think that some people are able to manipulate that and basically say that that Skylar was, that Skyler was even worse than Walt when that simply is not the case. And I, I do want to point out something interesting too, about that scene where Jimmy and Kim are watching a movie and Jimmy gets the phone call getting chewed out by cliff. Did you happen to recognize the movie they were watching? Not specifically. I did write down that they were watching. There is a sunset Boulevard, a uh, very specific sunset Boulevard reference when uh, Jimmy is thinking about uh, making that commercial and the, uh, the old woman in the chair, talks about being ready for a close-up, and that is very clearly a reference to that movie. Right. So the movie that they're watching is Ice Station Zebra, and I bring that up because it's you. It, it, he mentions it, and you probably forgot it, but in Breaking Bad, the name of Saul's holding company is Ice Station Zebra Associates. So in my mind, for Jimmy, a moment like this where he's with Kim, 
They're eating Chinese food. They're watching a movie. They're curled up on the couch. This moment to him was so special. It meant so much to him that in his life, he names his his holding company after the movie. So I think this just goes to show like this is this is really Jimmy in his happy place right here. For sure. And I think that the best scenes, the the one that show really sings is when you have these one-on-one conversations between Jimmy and Kim, Jimmy and Chuck, even when the three of them are in a room together. I mean, it's electric. You could definitely feel the energy in those scenes, and I think a lot of it has to do with the performances, and some of it clearly with the writing, but I think just from the performances, I mean, the way that these characters are written, it just feels so specific, so lived in. And Chuck really knows his brother well, probably too well, and when Chuck calls out Jimmy for for the way that he is getting different clients, Chuck knows what's going on. He, need, he doesn't have a full picture, but he definitely knows that Jimmy probably used some underhanded tactics to get these clients. And even when they're having their conversation later on and Jimmy and Chuck argue about Kim, Jimmy doesn't want Kim punished. And Chuck has this great line. He says that Jimmy is like an alcoholic who can't admit when he has a problem. And this is something that we see constantly because Jimmy is constantly getting himself in trouble and constantly doing things and constantly lying to the point where he's always at risk of being caught and either fired or losing his lawyer, losing his ability to practice as a lawyer. And Chuck even mentions the fact that he won't go down into the mud and admit that he is potentially committing a felony by by punishing Kim for Jimmy's actions. And I, I love those scenes tremendously between Chuck and Jimmy. And I even love that the way that episode five begins, uh, another great use of flashbacks this season. We get a number of them, and I think this is a really good one. When we get Chuck switching out a light bulb, which is normally on a show like, a show like this, why would Chuck switching out a light bulb be important but at this point in modern quote-unquote modern times of 2003 we know that chuck really can't be around electricity and here you have a flashback to this moment when he is fixing a light bulb and hanging out with his his wife and jimmy comes over for dinner and his wife is utterly charmed by jimmy and the way that he acts and behaves and chuck just has this look of annoyance on his face and this seems like a, a tremendous representation of the relationship that Jimmy is this very shady person who is beloved by everyone. And Chuck is the serious adult that nobody seems to like as much. Yeah. And I, it's funny you say you think that Chuck knows Jimmy so well, I kind of feel the opposite. I think Chuck understands the dirty tactics he takes as a lawyer, but I really don't know that he understands Jimmy as a person, which is why I think, causes the friction between the two of them because in my mind chuck is this upstanding person who went to law school and this and that and you know for for jimmy being a lawyer is a job for chuck being a lawyer is his identity and i think his his wife being a classical musician is like the perfect person that he would respect and have companionship with because i think chuck's a very particular person on who he associates with, who he wants to be with. And his brother represents the complete opposite of who he is. And because of that, he can't understand why anybody would like him, why anybody would hire him, why anybody would want anything to do with Jimmy. And yet even his own wife who finds him charming and laughs at his, at his lawyer jokes, he can't get his wife to laugh at his own lawyer joke. He just doesn't understand 
that Jimmy for, for him, he can be this, this affable human being and try to do things his way when Chuck and on the flip side, I think the same thing that I don't think Jimmy knows Chuck as well as he thinks he does. Cause I don't think he understands just how seriously Chuck takes the law and that being his identity either. So I think it's something where Jimmy wants his brother's love, but doesn't really understand him. And Chuck wants to keep Jimmy out of the profession of law, keep him at arm's length without really understanding who Jimmy is at his core. And I think that's a lot of the problem with their relationship and why there is this toxicity between them. And I think seeing seeing Chuck in his previous life with his wife and things going well really shows you the spiral that he's gone through both personally and professionally to get where he is. And another little subtle thing is there's the scene where Chuck is playing piano when Howard comes to his house and you see his wife's name written in the upper hand corner of the piano music. So little things like that, that to me just adds a whole bunch of, of texture and depth to the, to the relationship between Jimmy and Chuck. For sure. And I, I, I agree with you that I don't think Jimmy knows Chuck as well as he thinks he does, but I, I think that Chuck knows, I, at least it feels like he knows who Jimmy is at his core. And I think he sees the, his the way that he manipulates situations and the way that the the kind of the person behind the person and I think we get an idea. This is not something that's explicitly said necessarily, but clearly there are there are years of years of calluses that Chuck has developed because of Jimmy's behavior, and I think you get that a little bit when Chuck talks about uh, what happened with his father's uh, convenience store. And we even get a flashback of that and just kind of the beginnings of Slip and Jimmy. But you get the impression that there are a lot of calluses that Chuck is dealing with. And that is not to say that his behavior is always right. But I think the impression that you get is that Chuck never wants other people to have to deal with what he dealt with because of that 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 sibling because they've been siblings for so long and Jimmy's been behaving this way for so long. I, I just think that, that Chuck is doing everything that he can to make sure that Kim and Howard and Davis and Maine, that they don't have to deal with slipping Jimmy. Definitely not. But I also think Chuck misunderstands his motives. Like there's, there's a lot of good reasons for why Jimmy does what he does for the ultimate benefit of his clients and all this stuff. And it may not be on board and it may be at the expense of some other people, but or, you know, he may bend the truth to get access to a playground or an airfield with someone he pretends is a vet for his commercials and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, I think there are a lot of times where his heart's in the right place. And I don't think Chuck ever sees that out of him. No, certainly not. And I think where, where I start to agree with you is that I think there just comes a certain point when you kind of need to cut the cord and... I think it would be it would be in their both of their best interests to separate from each other and maybe to not have a relationship. And sometimes that that's what what can happen. Uh, so we've talked a lot about Jimmy and Chuck, and we're probably going to do that a little bit more. But we're at about a time when we need to talk about Aaron, who is my new favorite <laughs> character. Aaron is incredible. She is a kind of a junior associate, but she has been tasked with making sure that. Jimmy conforms to the house style of Davidson, Maine. Aaron is also a strong environmentalist. She's very environmentally conscious, and she's going to go over paperwork with Jimmy and just make sure that Slipping Jimmy does not do any more slipping. Yeah, she is, uh, uh, for any AP Bio fans, she reminds me a lot of Sarika, who's played by Aparna Abreel. 
Uh, she's just the the stick in the butt of everybody there, making sure that Jimmy stays on task. Uh, that there's no bending of the rules. She's she's the the kid in class who reminds the teacher they forgot to assign homework, and she's easily very hateable. Um, even though one could argue there are no hateable attributes to somebody like that, but it's so it's so sharp in contrast to how Jimmy is that it's she he really cannot be slipping Jimmy at all in any conceivable way around her with her sticking her nose in his business and making sure he's by the book going through every documents with painstaking detail that you could see is just crushing Jimmy's soul inside. We also get a scene of them going to the clerk's office at the courthouse. And we, even in that moment, Aaron will not let Jimmy slip into some of his old habits is I don't, I guess it's a bribe, but I think that one of the things that's really obvious obvious with Jimmy is Jimmy knows that when he goes into a specific situation, he knows the people that have the real power. When you go into an office building, in a lot of cases, the people with the real power, you're talking about the maintenance staff, you're talking about clerks, you're talking about secretaries, administrative assistants. You probably know this working at a university. I do as well. That in a lot of ways, those are the people with the real power because they're the ones that are pushing papers and negotiating the bureaucracy. So I think that what Jimmy does, it's not necessarily right, but even I'm looking at Aaron, I'm like, Aaron, you have no idea how the real world works. You are the type of person who goes just straight through school, did not have a quote unquote real job. And you don't know how the real world works, Aaron. And I want to see the spinoff where Aaron is trying to negotiate her world and just can't because she refuses to bribe secretaries and clerks and whatnot. Kevin, that's how things get done. Yeah, that is how things get done. You got you got to be nice to the little guy because there's the ones who's going to get you in the right place of 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 position and where you where you need to be. And if you maybe if it takes a little bit of a grease in the wheels, giving a stuffed animal to the person who can give you some appointment times. Then hey, what what's so wrong about that? But yeah, Aaron, not Aaron Cup- any stuffed animal, but a beanie baby, Kevin. Which in 2020 means nothing, but in 2003, beanie babies were a a very very important item, and people were paying thousands of dollars for these beanie babies. See, I feel like by 03 that was over. It was more like 97, 98. That was the big thing. You know, as someone whose family used to collect them. Even as I was saying it, I was like, was it 2003 or 97? Things just run together. But. Well, hey, she she still may like Beanie Babies. Who knows? Either way, the, the her her face as Aaron and Jimmy are arguing over this is great because she's growing frustration with almost having this in her hands and it being ripped away. Uh, it's it's great. It's perfect. The other thing I like about this, and I probably should have mentioned this with the Davis and Maine thing, was when he meets up with his old lawyer buddy who's still working at the courthouse and his perspective is that Jimmy's made it and has it good while Jimmy's almost pining for the olden days of what what they're doing at the courthouse. It's such a great juxtaposition between those two characters, just that the grass isn't always greener, as they say. No, it's certainly uh, it's certainly not. And one of the things that I really loved about just their interactions is that you see so much of the difference between uh, these two characters. And I think that it uh, it works out really well. And. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough good things about what Kim represents because in so many ways, she is the one who represents Davis in Maine, even more so than anyone else with her behavior and the reason that, that Jimmy ultimately decides that he wants to he wants to leave. And I love that whenever Cliff is around, that Aaron is literally right next to him. 
Yeah, it's it's the the most suck up person you could possibly have. It's I can't imagine that anybody at Davis and Maine likes her, whether they care to admit it or not. And uh, you had a great uh, a great analogy for the type of person that Aaron is. What was it? The one about school. I said it already. Oh yes, of course. Um, <laughs> Should we talk about Kim and uh, how she intends to dig herself out of the the document room? Yes, I think it is a great representation of just the way that these these two shows they really love to engage in the process and just showing struggles and how just incredibly difficult the the world is to navigate and the way that Kim does this. I mean, it's it's really great because there is a desperation in her behavior that we have not seen from a lot of female characters in this universe. Yeah, she she goes to work. She cold calls a bunch of places, seeing if they could use representation. And she she wants to score a big fish, a big client to try to impress Howard. And she thinks that's that's what it's going to take to get her out of document review. And that's you know that's business, right? I think for a lot of for for Kim, it's it's not a lot of the way I think that I think is such a great juxtaposition between Kim and Jimmy is Jimmy's trying to convince her. It's not always just business. It's personal. And Kim feels the opposite way. So in her mind, if she's able to score them a big client for, to represent that's business and she'll be able to dig herself out of document review. So she does, she gets Mesa Verde, a big bank chain to become a client of HHM. And as they're leaving, Howard still tells her that she needs to go back to document review because she has a lot of work. And boy, does that really piss her off. But that's exactly the ammunition Jimmy needs. Try to convince her that maybe it's time to look elsewhere. And I love the fact that we get Kim in the courtroom, even if it's for just a couple minutes, even though we are dealing with lawyers, we are not really dealing with them dealing with a lot of court cases in court. So I really love that scene, even if it's just a couple minutes to show that Kim is actually a good lawyer. She is good at argumentation. She's not just good at documents and glad handing and that stuff, but we actually see her be very competent in what is admittedly a losing situation, and it leads to a potential job offer. And I, I just, I really, really appreciated that scene and just the the interactions that she, she then has. Um, potentially moving on i mean it's it's just it's really good stuff and i think that uh where we should go next is to kind of talk about kind of their their transition and we get kim um going out on her own as uh as a means of uh trying to scam someone out of money yeah she's uh i guess it's also important for the backstory here is that when she's arguing so well, she gets uh, she's get taken out by lunch by one of the head people from Schweikert and Coakley, another law firm, and basically gets a job offer. She even goes as far as to interview with them. Uh, and again, I like the juxtaposition between this and HHM, where, like I said, HHM has this huge, long conference room table. We're here. It's a circle table. Two of the partners are females, unlike HHM, where it's all males and they're asking a lot of questions about not just Kim's work. They know her work is good, but who is she as a person and what does she want out of her out of her professional life? So it is very personal, but in a very positive way. But also at the end, she accidentally calls the male boss, Howard, and that leads her to realize what Jimmy told her was that this is a lateral move. You're moving from one Howard to another, and this kind of cinches it for her and where she decides to go out on her own. But at that lunch meeting with him, they were at a bar where they enjoyed some uh, Moscow mules. Uh, And so she returns to the bar by herself just to have a drink after a particularly annoying 
afternoon at HHM and a gentleman begins to flirt with her, buys her a drink, and she decides to once again put on the persona that her and Jimmy Don to scam Ken wins and calls Jimmy down there and they once again scam another gentleman out of some money. Uh, and so it's almost like she's had this this pressure building up, not sure what she wants to do with her life, and this has been her emotional stress valve relief is putting on the persona of Giselle as her name and uh, with Jimmy once again conning somebody. So it, it maybe she likes seeing that side of Jimmy, but it also, I think, makes herself feel good to be able to ha- take over that power when she feels so powerless in these positions. Yeah, I mean, it's just great. I'm, I, I love a good Moscow mule. I don't know about you, but... As soon as uh, as soon as he ordered that Moscow Mule, I'm like, this is a good guy. This is the kind of guy that I would like to have a drink with. Yeah, that I do love myself a good Moscow Mule. If it's made in a good restaurant and in that copper cup, uh, they're tough to beat. So I think uh, I think we get we've talked about Kim and what he's done, but I mean we have to talk about Jimmy and the way that he gets fired from Davis Made because <laughs> it is it's incredible because he can't quit because if he quits he has to give his bonus back. And so what he does is he goes on a historic, uh, historic work bender of all of all kinds of with all kinds of shenanigans as he buys a bunch of very, I would say, loud suits that are very colorful, but perhaps not consistent with the corporate atmosphere of any law firm. And he decides to not flush the toilet, which I think is perhaps the most offensive thing that he does, because not only are you not only are you hurting yourself, but you are hurting your other coworkers by by smelling up a bathroom. That that was gross. And it ends the the payoff is bagpipes. He literally decides that he is going to quote unquote learn the bagpipes and is playing them in his office as he as Cliff has finally heard enough and decides to fire Jimmy, calls him an asshole. And I think it's only in that moment that Jimmy realizes just what he has done and that Cliff and this law firm, they're not as bad as Jimmy thought. And I think that this law firm is very clearly trying to do something. And the way that Jimmy treats them is pretty crappy. It's definitely very crappy. They they didn't do anything to deserve this punishment. I think that's even what Cliff asked him. He's like, what did we do to deserve this? And he's like, well, you're just, you know, square peg. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, then why did you take the job in the first place? Like Cliff is is fed up with him. But Jimmy's brilliance is that everything he does is like there's nothing illegal or wrong with it. He's just taking it up to a notch too too far. Like you guys want to be more environmentally friendly then I won't flush the toilets. You want to you want to uh, encourage eating fruits and vegetables and being healthier. Well, then I'll buy a juicer for the office. Uh, so he does it in this very this very calculated way where it's not something where he, he can get fired for cause. It has to be their decision. And I and I also really appreciate that they don't make Cliff look stupid. He knows exactly what Jimmy's up to when he fires him. Uh, and I, I always appreciate that too, because I, the again, these are, these are all very smart people that they're dealing with. And even though they make, they, they give Jimmy what he wants, even at the end of the day, Cliff says, you know, I could probably see you for X, Y, and Z, but you're not even worth my time. Just take your bonus and get out of here. It's just worth his time to get Jimmy out of his hands. And for that, I appreciate that they don't do Cliff a disservice as a character. It's unfortunate that we did not get more of Ed Bagley Jr., but such is the life of a character actor. And this leads to Jimmy and Kim deciding and kind of haggling about what they are going to do. And eventually Kim comes to the decision that they should share office space, 
but that they should have their own separate practices so that their personal lives don't always become intermingled with their professional lives. But because Jimmy is Jimmy McGill, he has to get involved and it leads to perhaps the, the kind of the ending, the ending arc of the season as, as Jimmy manipulates some files and uh, this is this is so important. Manipulate some files so that so that Chuck ends up uh, screwing his clients potentially out of uh, some holdings in Arizona and being able to open a new branch someplace by simply uh, doctoring some documents and changing the uh, the numbers on the address and transposing some numbers and making Chuck think that he has lost a step or that he is continuing to lose his mind. And uh, it's it's really. It's really compelling because on the surface, Jimmy is doing this really evil thing uh, to his brother, but he's doing it out of a sense of, I guess, loyalty to Kim. And basically with the perception being that Kim got screwed out of potentially representing Mesa Verde by herself and that she would have to continue to struggle to get clients like Jimmy is doing uh, in his last couple episodes as he is trying to market himself to a, a group of senior citizens. Uh, a running gag that I desperately hope continues throughout uh, the rest of the show. But this ending arc takes a, a number of really dramatic turns as uh, we get a moment where Jimmy, Kim, and Chuck are arguing in Chuck's house. And again, Chuck has basically figured out what Jimmy has done. And by basically, I mean, he totally has figured it out. And Kim is actually the one who defends Jimmy to Chuck's face but then once they're both in the car, Kim very, very obviously knows that, that what Jimmy has done. And this leads to a back and forth as they are talking in bed. And Jimmy has to go back to the, the copy, the copy place. Did they did they give the copy place a name? I didn't write it down. Yeah, if they do, I don't remember it. So Jimmy has to go back to the copy place. He bribes the uh, the, the poor probably minimum wage worker who's working there. And then we get, uh, we get Chuck and uh, Ernesto coming in and Chuck is yelling and yelling and he is slowly kind of losing it. And episode nine ends in a really dramatic way as Chuck hits the side of his head against one of the counters in one of the most violent scenes that I think we've seen. And given what we've seen on this, in this universe, I mean, it is pretty dramatic. And, the thing that I, I really appreciate about this show is when there is violence, it is magnified and it is really, really important. And this is one of the most violent things uh, that I've seen in quite some time. So I've got about a thousand things to say out of everything you've thrown out there. So I'll try to start from the beginning and go through in a through line. Right. So so Kim is looking to leave HHM and she decides I don't want to go with Schweikart and Coakley either. I want to go out on my own. And Jimmy gives her this business card to suggest that what if you and I partner up together? We don't need anybody else. We can do our own thing, practice law the way we want to. And Kim's only question is, how are you going to practice the law? And Jimmy, this is like the one person Jimmy realizes he can't lie to. And he, and he tells her straight up, I'm going to practice the law the way that I want to do it. And so after that interview with Schweikart and Coakley, Kim, Kim makes the decision that we can be our own separate entities sharing one building, but everything is separate. And she makes that very clear. And again, this is the thing I like about her being a very strong, independent character is she also gives her terms to Jimmy and says, like, this is how we're going to do it. You either accept it or you don't. Um, and then, of course, she has to go and try to take 
uh, Mesa Verde for herself. They're the client she got. She rightfully feels they're her clients, but she needs to convince them to leave this giant law firm, HHM, which is going to have her back and have a ton of people on her job. And ultimately, she convinces them to do so. And this is where things get ugly with Chuck, because when when Howard comes and tells Chuck that Mesa Verde has left them and they're going with Kim, Howard obviously seems or not Howard. Chuck obviously doesn't like this, but I think appreciates the gumption of Kim. And then he learns that she's going to be working with Jimmy. And that's what gets Chuck to put on his suit, go into this meeting and say, everyone keeps their phones. You keep the lights on. Everything is as normal as it is. And and it's really Jimmy's involvement that that gets Chuck motivated to get off his butt and get those clients back and take them away from Kim. And that is ultimately then what gets Jimmy to do what he does. So Chuck's motivations are purely out of spite to try to get these these competitors away from her because they have plenty of other clients. They're a big firm. They were doing just fine without them. They didn't even know they need a representation until Kim got them or Kim having having Mesa Verde makes or breaks her having her own practice. And that's why Jimmy does what he does with the doctoring of the documents. It's the smallest thing that anybody can make a mistake over. Even even Howard and Kim are saying this to him. And it's obviously believable that he's somebody under a lot of mental duress with his with his state. Uh, it, it makes sense that his brain would be fried figuratively or literally with everything he's been doing. And it's a mistake that anybody can pass off. But Chuck, again, his motivation to spite, even though he's correct, it is still motivated by spite to figure out that Jimmy has conned him this whole time. He can't accept that maybe his mental faculties have lost him. But that, again, goes back to Ch- to he to Jimmy not understanding Chuck completely in that he thought that Chuck maybe have thought that he made a mistake and it could explain it away. He did not think he would obsess and obsess with this, which pays off in the finale of season 10. But then you get Jimmy doing the bribe, watching to make sure it goes all goes down correctly and seeing his brother get his head hit on the counter. And now he has to make a decision. Do I rescue my brother or do I let him suffer? Because if I don't, if I do go in, this is going to really jeopardize my role in this whole process. So I know that was a lot to take in, but all that to say, I thought this story was friggin' awesome in these last few episodes of the season. Yeah, the the last few episodes, I mean, everything really, the volume gets turned up and things just feel the stakes get raised. And I just, I really appreciated what they were able to do. And the fact that we are dealing with a sibling relationship and we don't often get these kind of really dense sibling relationships like this i mean where there's clearly so much history going along and i think the fact that you have casted these two great actors to play these brothers they're really able to bounce off each other in a really great way and michael mckeon and bob odenkirk i think at this point in you know 10 years ago they were probably more associated for their work in comedies but now 10 years later this this might be the the most important thing or probably the thing that they're most remembered for is their roles in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, respectively. And it really just shows you the toxicity of their relationship. And you really see that materialize in the way that they act towards each other. It, uh, it sucks. It just, it really sucks to see a sibling relationship go down this way because I'm sure that there are a lot of audience members who can identify with both Chuck and Jimmy. And that's something that I think makes television so compelling is when you can have characters that you really enjoy, but that you can also identify with. I think that's where, that's where I think the show is, is so much 
I think Breaking Bad in some cases feels a lot more heightened because the drug aspect is always right there. Where I think Better Call Saul, I think just covering kind of the normal interactions between brothers in some cases and just the obsession. And does it go a little bit maybe too far? And what, is it totally realistic? Maybe not. But I think this idea of the way the brothers and siblings interact with each other is very plausible. Yes. And I also think that one of the key reasons I think Kim, you know, tells Chuck what for in episode I forget if it's nine or ten when he's trying to, or I guess yeah, it would have had to have been ten when he's revealing all the whole process to to her and saying that Jimmy did it for her, blah blah blah, and she puts Chuck in his place. Has to, has to go back to their chance encounter at HHM, or I think that Kim thinks it's a chance encounter, but I think it was very done purposefully by Chuck, where there's a there's a conversation where Kim asks about her future at HHM, and th- and Chuck takes this as an opportunity to essentially throw Jimmy under the bus telling her what a bad person he was as a kid and also making her get a cup of coffee, making her get him a cup of coffee and all this other stuff too. Uh, and getting her back on the good graces of Howard and back as partner. It's, it's this big power play by Chuck, but also from my perspective, completely inappropriate for Chuck to bring up Jimmy or any of their personal relationship in this conversation about her future at HHM. And I think that rightfully does not sit well with her and has a big, reflection on how she handles things in episode 10. Um, so I really like that too. Something else we didn't even talk about was the opener to episode seven. When we see him, uh, we see Jimmy as a kid working at the convenience store with his dad. Um, one thing I found interesting about this is that this was actually something that was filmed for season one. Uh, there's the episode. It's episode nine that opens with Jimmy and Chuck outside. It's where Chuck like nonchalantly goes outside to Jimmy's car to get some files. And then he realizes, "Uh oh, I'm outside. Um, And it opens that way. It was supposed to open with this convenience store scene where we see that their dad's a bit of a pushover. And Jimmy realizes he could probably take some cash from the register here and there. Uh, And so, yeah, I know I just threw out a lot there, but I thought that Kim and Chuck scene was great. I thought this convenience store thing was Somewhat important because I think out of that Chuck and Kim scene, you're thinking like, is Chuck really telling us a tall tale about the convenience store and Jimmy and his dad and all this stuff? And then you come to realize that maybe there is some truth to that story. And so there's a, there's a number of things I want to mention about the last episode. Of course, we get Chuck and Jimmy in the hospital together. I think at first it, it might seem that, well, Jimmy's there for his brother. But in fact, we see the two brothers sitting next to each other as their mom dies and Jimmy just has to go and get something to eat. And it is in that moment that when he leaves, his mom passes, but the last words that she says are calling out Jimmy's name, but this is something that Chuck does not mention to his brother. And I am wondering if this is ever going to have some sort of a payoff, but it does not necessarily pay off in this episode, but it is information that I'm going to store more later. And there's a lot of discussion about what's going to happen with Chuck is Chuck going to end up being committed. Jimmy decides that he is not going to do that to his brother. We also get uh, Chuck in a self-induced catatonic state once again, as we get the doctor from season one play, played by Clea Duvall. She returns to, to play this role. And we get a big scene at the end where Jimmy kind of lays it all on the table as he admits uh, to what he did uh, to his brother. And Jimmy basically admits to committing a felony. And this pays off 
something that happened in an earlier episode where where Chuck would not do it. And Chuck, knowing this, even though it involves electricity, he is recording his brother confessing uh, to the crime and confessing to what he did. And that's where we leave off season two. So a lot happened even in this final episode as we continue to see the deterioration of this brotherly relationship. And you get the feeling that there, there's no coming back from this, that, that what Chuck has done is certainly putting these two in a position where uh, they are not going to be able to be loving brothers uh, ever again, if they ever were. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the most important aspects of uh, the final episode. Also, we get to see Jimmy's uh, commercial that he had been shooting over the last few episodes. And Kevin, this was a Trump ad. That's all I'll say about it. Gimme Jimmy. What else do you say? That's all. That's all I have to say. No, it, yeah, it def- it definitely does feel like a Trump ad in, in these different times. But again, made a good year before I think Trump maybe had decided to run for president or like there were still talks or something. But uh, definitely it feels more like a Saul Goodman ad than it does a Jimmy McGill ad. But it, uh, it, it gets some business. We see that he is really uh, – really – Doubling down on that whole, um, you know, senior advocate position for his lawyer, uh, for his law practice. And it seems to be working for him. But I think in terms of Chuck and the tape recorder or anything, this is what really makes him despicable, in my opinion. Because when Kim gives him what for at the end of the season, she mentions how all Jimmy ever wanted was his respect, his love. And he could never bear himself to give it to him. And so that's exactly what Chuck exploits to get Jimmy to fess up because, you know, Chuck, Chuck has to really put in a Hail Mary move by putting in his resignation to HHM in expecting that Jimmy's going to come and fess up because he sees the, that his brother is so distraught by this, this mistake that he's made that he's going to exploit his brother's love and affection for him as a gotcha. And that's exactly what Chuck does. This isn't me telling you that what Jimmy did was right in any ways. But it is me telling you that I think Chuck, instead of maybe feeling like that it may be that there is something there that he can make amends with his brother, he decides to exploit it instead as a gotcha. And that to me is what uh, kind of puts Chuck over the edge as a character that's going to be really hard to come back from uh, in seasons going forward. And honestly, I felt that way about Howard, too, when he. Even though Kim brought the Mesa Verde, he puts her back in Dockerview. That made that really colored my change of opinion on Howard from maybe he's not such a bad guy to ah, this guy's kind of a jerk. Yeah, the way that they they swing the pendulum with Howard is really impressive because I think you start off thinking he's this really bad person. Then by the end of season one, you're very sympathetic to him because it's clear that Chuck is manipulating him and is probably the one that's really in charge. And even even into a couple episodes of season two. We think Howard's a good guy, but then ultimately the way that he treats Kim, who has gotten so much more of a prominent role in season two, we realize, nope, Howard's Howard's a really bad person. Chuck, also a really bad person for what he did. I mean, this this crosses just so many lines, and as I mentioned, there's, there, there's no coming back from this. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what happens in season three, and undoubtedly in season three we're going to get a lot of Mike uh, continuing to inculturate himself into uh, the drug dealers. I have no doubt about that. And uh, this, this Chuck and Jimmy stuff is only going to continue to escalate as well. Yeah. There's only two other little things about season two trivia that I didn't get to. 
One is that one of the parts of Jimmy's commercial is uh, having a World War II veteran in front of a of a plane. Uh, and they talk about this being a Boeing B-29 Super Fortress. It's the last one that was able to fly. All of that is legitimate. It's a plane that they had on display in Texas. It's the last of its kind that was able to be airborne. So all that's true. And I like when they just happen to incorporate things like that into a show where it's it, for some reason to me. Yeah, you could lie and make stuff up about this. But having the genuine article to me just adds a little a little nice extra wrinkle to it. And the one little thing that I felt was worth mentioning was that there's one scene where Mike is is playing with his granddaughter and she has this little toy pig. Well, Jerome, you may remember that's the same toy pig that when Mike gets called by Chow to come to his house and he realizes something's up, he uses that toy pig in the peephole to distract the killer inside of Chow's home when he goes inside, kills that person and realizes that uh, that Chow has already been killed long ago. Uh, so nice seeing that little pig again, again, a kind of a blink if you miss it, but it's just those little tiny things that, uh, bring a smile to my face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just those small details. I think that's, that's what the show has been able to, uh, to get right. And with bringing a prequel, being a prequel series, I think there's always a temptation to incorporate elements very prominently and just do a lot of fan service. But I think the show has smartly, broad characters back in in natural ways that it doesn't it doesn't feel exploitative at all so a good on the show and good for good for keeping it a a compelling watch and i think that overall i think my feelings about season two are very comparable to season one i think the mike stuff works a little bit less than the chuck stuff uh the chuck and jimmy stuff but i would i would definitely say that this is still about a b plus for me i still really really enjoyed it i still really enjoyed the interactions with the characters, I think there's a lot of strong work and I, I, I get the impression that seasons three, four and five are going to, are going to be a lot more elevated and the tension is really going to start to rise. But uh, these first two seasons were very enjoyable. Yeah. I think for season two, the highs are higher, but the lows are also lower. I think there's a little bit more downtime in the middle of season two than there wasn't season one. So I think overall, I probably enjoy season one a little bit more even if I do think there's a lot more of a robust and interesting story, especially on the Jimmy side towards the latter part of the season, Uh, but still a really great watch. And I don't mind telling you, Jerome, that season three includes my favorite episode of Better Call Saul and the return of yet another beloved character to the universe that is very natural, works very well. And uh, I think it's someone that you're going to be very happy to see back to. So I'm really excited to, to come back next month and discuss season three of Better Call Saul. Absolutely. And I, I have a feeling I know who it is because again, the Netflix thumb, the, the Netflix thumbnail has, has spoiled me on an element of, of this show, but we'll get into all of that next month. We want to thank you all again for joining us this month for real bad. We will talk to you again next month for better call Saul season three. You know what, Jerome, I think next month, maybe I'll take my coffee with soy milk. I've been meaning to try it. So uh, why don't you give me a half gallon of that?